Welcome to Out of the Lab, a podcast interviewing entrepreneurs who've taken research out of the lab and built it into a company that's serving the world. These entrepreneurs are heroes, and the planet needs more of them. So tune in, learn from their successes and failures, and get inspired. Visit Bountiful.org to join our community and realize your power to save the world. Hello and welcome to Out of the Lab. I'm your host, Max Finder, and we are Bountiful.org. Today's guest is Dave Allen. Uh, Dr. Dave Allen was is a 30-year veteran of the technology transfer space. He recently retired from the University of Arizona, where he led Tech Launch Arizona, their tech transfer program. Before that, he was at the University of Colorado system as a VP in technology transfer, and before that, Ohio State. He was also a professor of entrepreneurship uh, at uh, Penn State, and He's extremely impressive and seasoned. It's a really technical discussion on technology transfer and sort of the the high-level concepts on how tech transfer offices can improve. So talking about things like proof of concept funding um, and engaging the entrepreneurial and business ecosystems in the area. He did this in, at, in, in Tucson, Arizona, and over the course of eight years, built it into a powerhouse for technology transfer where there really wasn't much activity before. Uh, and during his tech transfer career, he supervised over 600 exclusive licenses. Uh, we dig a little bit into what that kind of means. He enabled over 175 startups, which is insane. He managed nearly 225 proof, proof of concept projects and su- successfully negotiated two major $40 million plus royalty monetizations. Um, he's extremely, extremely impressive with this stuff. Uh, I learned a ton about technology transfer and I think you'll really enjoy it. So tune in and visit bountiful.work for more. And here's the episode. Thank you. Dave, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got started in tech transfer, if that's a good place to start. Sure. Uh, this goes way back in the 80s when I was a professor at Penn State University and teaching entrepreneurship. And as part of the class, students had to do a business plan. And I got tired of seeing business plans for video stores. Yeah, it goes that far back. That's the 80s, wow. Yeah, it's the 80s. And um, so I, I went down to the intellectual property office at the university and said, hey, you know, can I work my MBA students into some of these um, with some of these inventions? And I found these very wicked, cool inventions going on. And um, so through that process, I also started to um, do research on university commercialization. And was that program that you suggested, like how do we get our MBAs into some of these technologies? Was that novel at the time? Yeah, there were very few entrepreneurship programs back there. I mean, I mean, every university has a major one now, pretty much. But you know, forty years ago was a hell of a lot different. Entrepreneurship was generally not perceived as a viable academic discipline within business, and now it is 
probably one of the hottest disciplines within business. Yeah. But we're, we, yeah, we're talking the beginning of the technology um, revolution. You know, there, we weren't even in, in the 80s. We didn't, um, there was no internet. Well, it was no internet like we know it, et cetera. So anyway, I started to do research on it and I, on commercialization. I went to different kinds of seminars and, and training sessions, learned about intellectual property. And about four or five years later, I decided that I had done enough um, in terms of my academic career, doing more and more about less and less. And I had been working for a venture capital firm and my perspectives were widening working with them and my perspectives at the university were narrowing. You know, you're, you're supposed to be an expert in something and um, that's not necessarily a widening um, perspective. Right. So I left and, and I started at a, um, a smaller university, Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, but it was known for its entrepreneurial uh, activities. And then I ran an incubator there and started up a tech transfer program. And the third week I was there, one of our incubator clients, companies went public. And it just so happened, and it was, um, it happened on a Friday and uh, there wasn't many other people. They were out and about celebrating. I happened to be on the phone when the Wall Street Journal called and said, well, can you tell us about this company? And well, I had been there three weeks. I didn't tell them that. But after I went through this and made it to the uh, Wall Street Journal, I, I said, you know, I really like this. <laughs> So anyway, that started my career back in the early 19, it was, that was probably 1991. And is, is there a reason why, you, so you saw this opportunity of tech transfer or, the, or the, the, the field of tech transfer, and is there a reason that you decided to get on the um, university and licensing side as opposed to potentially licensing a technology yourself and becoming an entrepreneur? I mean, you had seen it as a venture capitalist, so it, it is conceivable yeah. it could have gone the other way, right? Clearly, there are many times where I thought about making the jump, and um, I guess part of it was a bit of risk aversion. Uh, I was just out of graduate school; didn't have you know any personal capital. Had a young family. Um, had a fairly risk adverse wife, but um, I really liked what I was doing. I really liked the perspective of working at, and I went from Ohio University to Ohio State, major university, big time, and um, they ended up paying me pretty well. So money was never a major driver for me. It was always, am I doing the things that I wanna do? Am I learning? Am I contributing? And, um, you know, like I said, there were times where I almost did. And then I said, you know, this is really what I like and this is what I know. And uh, this field is moving fast. Technology was, you know, always con constantly changing and, and, and things are happening that um, you're not going to get in a being a single focus, you know, head down, making it happen with a technology. 
And I think it was just, that's just part of my, the way I, I am. So this is the, the spawn of a 27 year career in yeah. technology transfer. Right. And, and you've been in a few different places, right? So you've been at Ohio State, you've been at Penn State, the right? University. Yeah, well, Penn State, I was, uh, I was, was a where you were teaching, yeah. right? Yeah, teaching, doing research. And then, so I went from Ohio University to Ohio State, and then the University of Colorado. I was there for 10 years, and they, um, it was a system, and we had two major offices, one in the Boulder campus and one in uh, the Anschutz Medical Campus, uh, which is uh, outside of Denver. And then I left there in 2012 after 10 years and went to the University of Arizona, which was uh, a great move in that uh, a new president came in. I was her second hire. And I said to her, you know, we can do this. That we had a, the, the university had a really poor reputation. I said, there's only one thing I need, Ann, for us to make this work. And it's something that very few tech transfer people get. And if you give it to me, and it's not necessarily money, it is basically people, because I'm going to change things. We're going to turn this upside down. It's clearly not working. That's why you hired me. You want you wanted a change agent. You want to, and you and you're saying you're going to give me the keys and I'm going to drive. That's fine. But when you do something that fundamental, that the change that we made was so fundamental, there will be people who benefited from the old approach that are gonna to come to you and say, either he's not doing the right thing or he doesn't recognize who I am. That's not the case. I always know who I'm working with. Um, I need you to say that you totally support me and you're not gonna second guess me. So people from the business community that got some sweetheart deals in the past or people, you know, faculty that, you know, wanted this, that, or the other, she would say, hey, David's the guy. I totally support him. And after a couple of years, all those people who try to take those kind of runs at me, it just stopped because everybody pretty much got on the bandwagon and <clears throat> our new approaches uh, were working really well. And, um, and it took off. And so, so what, can we break some of those things down? Like what are the new approaches? How did you shake things up? What are the things that you know, people were pushing back against? Some of like, can, can you maybe talk about some of the old world stuff and, and the new ideas yeah. that you brought to the, to the fold? Well, the old approach was basically one of, uh, they first off did not have the resources to, to do speculative patent filings. You know, you get an invention disclosure, it's really hard to figure out what kind of um, commercial product or process or whatever that will eventually be in five to eight years. If it'll be anything, most aren't, most won't. So you got to go with the, with, you have to play a long, uh, play a long ball game. You can't be there just for a year and a half. So that was one thing that changed. You got to make decisions and uh, the whole patenting process changed. Rather than doing in-house patent counsel, we had we went outside to the best patent attorneys around. And, and that was that was um, 
untraditional in some respects? No, that wasn't. See, the problem was that there, there's, there's two things you want to focus on when you're doing a change like this. You want to focus on what are the best practices and what are the either the leading or will be the leading practices? What are, what are the emerging practices that you can look at and say, oh my God, we could be doing that. So the best, there's the best practices you can easily get by just being part of the network of your peers across the US and you know, to some extent throughout the world. Uh, that has, by the way, I like to add, that's fundamentally changed. You got uh, European uh, tech transfer offices that were not even uh, close to knowing what they were doing to some of the best in the world now. Israeli tech transfer offices have been leading the, this uh, profession for years. So you got to go outside the U.S. too and then figure out how applicable that might be in your own context. So you go to the best practices and some of those things were just not being followed. And then you go and you look, okay, what are the practices that are, are leading the way? What are some people doing that are making a big difference? And so I'll focus a little bit on those. I had done some of that work and uh, was part of that you know, leading community at Colorado. And things like, well, two, basically there's two major ones. One is working with your business ecosystem, your entrepreneurial ecosystem. Now you don't have to worry about that if you're MIT and you're Stanford, because you're in the ecosystem. Boston, Silicon Valley, you know, you got people, venture people coming to you, you're you have serial entrepreneurs that are coursing through that um, that economy. That's not as much the case in Tucson uh, back then, eight years ago, as it is now, but certainly was in Boulder, Colorado, which is a, a very vibrant um, technology ecosystem. So what you got to do is you got to get into that. You have to leverage that. And what had happened in the past that a lot of places was that the tech transfer office didn't want to work with other people unless they were solely interested in taking the technology forward. And it turns out that entrepreneurs, particularly tech entrepreneurs, are just, are just curious guys and, and gals. They're, they want, they are looking for an opportunity and they can help you figure out if it is an opportunity. But there's also other people, whether, whether it be alumni or uh, people at operating companies, you know, C-level people that are curious, like, wow, university's got this technology, what else do you have? And so you basically bring them around the table and you say, all right, guys, you know, we're going to set up a system here that if you don't play by the rules, you're not going to be invited back. If you think you can end round me, I'll find out about it. And that's, that's the last time you'll be working with us. What was but that term? With, what was that term you just used? Sorry. Well, if you go and end around, that's a football, American football term. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you outflank, you uh -huh. try to outflank me, you know, and, and in this context, it would be, you go to the university professor and say, don't listen to that tech transfer office. Just listen to me. 
Is that a big problem, bypassing, the, that the professors it, will bypass? It, it the can be, and, and it becomes a, a pattern where the, if the technology transfer office does a poor job. So when I came to Colorado, when I came to uh, Arizona, I said to the faculty, I said, listen, a lot of you guys have gone outside the process. I don't blame you. The process stinks. We're going to change it. I think it's great that you had enough uh, support from somebody else and you had a vision for your own technology and you, and you put your energy into it. We're going to change that process so that your energy and your outside support will be there for you. We'll help marry that up with you. And so I said, and basically I'm grandfathering all of you. I'm not gonna chase you down. If you did it, that's fine. It's just not gonna happen anymore. And that's what I needed the president to say, no, you can't do that. I don't care if you're a Nobel laureate, you can't do that. So that's why I said I needed one thing from her. And that's what I needed. I needed that unambiguous support to to set the new culture and its pattern in, in, in effect. Okay, and, and so, so you, were, you were building relationships with entrepreneurs and also operating companies yeah. in the business so that, communities, that's important. Right, getting people around the table and there's lots of different ways you do it. We call I, it I would love to hear even details just because I think our audience is on the lookout okay. for things like that, yeah. Okay, well, I'll give you the current, one of the current approaches. We call them commercialization partners. Basically people who've been there, done that. There are people who have worked in technology companies and, and or are working in technology companies, venture capital, um, you know, in, in different contexts like that, and just sit them around the table and you say, hey, we got this. Just came in. This looks really cool. What do you all think? And and so you start a process and they ask questions and then they'll go visit the the inventor with your tech transfer guy from the, uh, or gal from the office. And um, the faculty all of a sudden say, oh my God, look at you brought in a person who has developed this drug. I've never talked directly as a faculty member to someone who's developed the drug because faculty get rewarded for pushing the envelope of, of science for basic understanding. They don't get rewarded for commercialization. So they end up uh, maybe not ever meeting those people, um, especially downstream people. I mean, downstream, you know, upstream, however you want to talk about it, but people closer to the marketplace. And, and rewarding them for, for commercialization, is that something that you see is starting to shift? I mean, is that somewhere where um, we can invest well, more, more deeply? Yes and no. First off, um, most university uh, royalty distribution policies vary by degree, not kind. Uh, by that, I mean some goes to the inventor, some goes to the inventor's lab, some goes to the university, some goes typically to maybe the college, or uh, some might go to support the tech transfer office such that it becomes a, you know, a, an enterprise in its own right, not just a subsidy center. Uh, and um, 
those have not changed that much, those distribution policies from the very beginning. It, it's, it's most of university tech transfer is, um, it started back in the eighties with a, uh, a legislative, a federal legislative act called the Bayh-Dole Act, where basically universities then received the ownership rights and technology that was funded by the federal government, which is 80% of science. So that hasn't changed. What's changed is the way you involve the faculty member. You don't put it all on their back. I mean, the old approach was the faculty member had this technology and, and had to pay for the patent expense after the first two years, uh, would go to the business school, try to get a, a um, business plan by undergraduate students. And, and my, my analogy was they would have all these things and they'd come home and they'd take their backpack and dump it on the kitchen table and go, okay, what do I do next? And what we did is we, we, put people around the table who would talk to them, people from all over the world. We had people calling in from, from different countries sometimes. Um, we needed and to find uh, domain experts, people who not only could understand and appreciate the technology, but can tell us, all right, here's what's going on in the marketplace. And here's how, if this technology works, it can be different and can make a difference. So what we would do is we would have these conversations and as part of the conversation, you just listen as that's my role and see is it coming together? Are the answers making sense? Are people still engaged or are they not coming to the meeting? And are, are people not talking about that anymore? And as is, in other words, what's the excitement level? And if the excitement level is increasing, you know, you got something. And then you start to direct the conversation towards, well, what is the next aspect of this technology from where it's at today, which is in the lab, which was basically a faculty member came up with something and we get them to answer this question. Is there somebody that could use this beyond yourself? That's the fundamental question to the faculty member whether it's a tool or, you know, it's a, a finding, could that be uh, used in another way? And we try to figure out in essence, what um, would be basically a um, developmental plan for the technology, but you don't look at the last thing first, that's too far away. The technology can, it's too nascent to be able to deliver to that. What you do is you go back the other way and say, all right, if it's going to be this kind of a product or in this kind of a market or solve this kind of a problem, what it, from where it's at today, what has to happen next? Sometimes, you know, in this marketplace, toxicity is the big issue for these class of drugs. If you got toxic, so you got to do some cell studies. And Again, the faculty seldom have the money because their money comes from the federal government. And unless it's programs like the Small Business Innovation Research Program, they don't have the resources to direct their students into to do these kind of studies, these proof of concept studies. So what's the concept? 
if that's the next step, can you prove that you can get to that next step? If you do, you got more excitement, you got a data package, you can start to put a, a pitch deck together and you can go to the people who are in that industry and say, hey, look at, I know where you guys are. Um, here's where, here's what we have. And we can prove, and no, it's not done, but this is where you'd have to step up. And you typically wouldn't go to the incumbent and uh, in you wouldn't go to the leader, you'd go to the incumbent. You wouldn't go to the market leader because they'll say, no, the, the, the curse of a tech transfer conversation with a business is when the CEO is interested and you sit down with them with a faculty member and they turn to their CTO or their chief scientific officer and they go, why couldn't we do this? Or why didn't we do this? You're dead when that question is put out because then everybody gets defensive. You got to get totally away from the defensiveness and into the, oh, uh, let's engage and get excited. All right, so where are we? So the, so that's the second element of a leading practice. And that is a proof of concept program. Proof of concept is probably for maybe 10 to 15% of your technologies. You, and, and there's lots of ways to do this incorrectly too. If you ask the faculty who don't necessarily understand the pathway to market, they'll just give you a response of, yeah, we'll do more science. That's what they're trained to do. That's what they do their grants on. And we even got to the point where we said, okay, we're not going to pay you as an individual. This is going to be, you're either going to contract this out to a contract research organization, or you're going to do it within your laboratory, but not you. We're not going to pay you because that's, you know, that's not, that's, so those are the sets of rules that, and uh, you evolve, you usually do some type of uh, tranching and say, okay, take this uh, five month process and we'll break it down into two stages. And if you can get to that first stage, you get your second money, but you don't get to that uh, first stage, you don't get your second money, which is different from the way they work with the federal government. The federal government basically comes in and says, okay, you have a three-year grant, and you're going to get your money for three years. And this is, you're talking about proof of, con a pool of proof of concept money that the TTO is, yes. is offering. Yes. yes. And so can you break down, you said specifically, you're, you know, you want, you, you, there's, you can put milestones on it, but what was yeah. the other piece about farming it out to a contract research organization? Well, or you know, sometimes the, the work that needs to be done is maybe some kind of testing. So you're doing, so here, okay, here's a good example. Um, you, part of this is some take, take some kind of an engineer product and you're gonna do a prototype. Well, the proof of concept is, Stage one is do the prototype. How do you make this? And, and your analysis says if it can go faster and it's smaller and um, it uses less energy, it could go into a whole segment uh, of the market. And this guy did it on his, his laptop, right? And so, okay, how do you get this down to, you know, some kind of a, a, a micro level? And so they may not have the capacity to do that. 
you might have to ship us. You might put this on a chip. You have to go somewhere else. So any kind of um, activity that is necessary to prove that next step, that that faculty member either doesn't have the equipment or the university doesn't have the equipment or, and then it has to be evaluated. All right, so you're gonna run something through it. You're gonna test its temperature. You're gonna test it. Well, temperature probably wouldn't be a good one. It'd be, you know, cause that'd be easy to tell. Well, but it, something where you need high precision instrument instrumentation that you can, that a contract research organization would have. And how do you decide who meets those criteria? Which which researchers, which okay. faculty yeah. members can can make it? You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sure. Well, most people, most tech transfer people uh, offices will do a competitive situation and then put that out into an evaluation committee. And I started that way, and it doesn't work very well because typically that's the first time the the um, committee has actually seen the technology and within 15 minutes they're supposed to make a judgment on it. They know nothing about the faculty member or very little and so what we did is we said okay the people that are sitting around the table who may have seen this six months ago when it came in as a disclosure of an invention and have gone through one or two sessions They've already met with the faculty member. They're working on it themselves with our people, our marketing people, or our licensing people. And they're saying, you know, this is the market. This is the pathway to that market. And this is the nature of the problem. This is how this might solve that problem. And so basically we would then work with the faculty member and typically uh, we would, have a entrepreneur in residence or a uh, you know a, a person who is not a licensing officer they were they're typically people who want to work at universities they don't we don't pay them much um, they're more curious people they want to they're usually retired or often um, have have um, you know go, you know sold their, their company and looking for the next thing to do, don't know what it is, and they want to get back to, to looking at a, a broad. So these people would, would work with the faculty member and basically pull together a proposal. And we have you know broad outline of what the proposal is necessary and, and, and how to break it down. And, what, and, and then we would present the proposal to the group. And it would be my decision, or now the director of tech transfer, um, uh, my friend Doug, who runs the operation now, basically saying, okay, I'm listening to what you all say. And some of you are saying, you're not satisfied that this endpoint is meaningful. In other words, it does not fit to that development pathway. Well, we got to work it back and we got to find a meaningful endpoint. And if we can't, you can't, and it doesn't get funded. If it goes back, revise, rethink, comes back to this group and they go, yeah, that's meaningful. If you can show that, I know there's gonna be people who are gonna be interested in this. So it, it's not a 15 minute evaluation. It's a iterative back and forth um, over a period of time. And in the, the one of the key aspects is 
you're working with the inventor. Is this person not only motivated, but are they willing to work with people? Are they willing to take advice? Are they, um, are they adaptive? You're not gonna get that in a, in a, a proposal that is just a response to uh, a, uh, an RFP. You're not gonna get that in a document. Person's not gonna say, yeah, I'm adaptive and I'm in, you know, all that. This is, this is actually something that you've worked with them for six months and you've figured this out. They come back and go, this is great. This guy can't work with anybody. He won't listen to anybody. Well, then you have to have that adult conversation with them. Hmm. And so then, and then if the person went to the president and said, oh, I have this great technology and he's not giving it to me, she has to say, or he, I'm sorry, he's that, that that's the process. You're not going to, um, that's what we're putting our money behind, not behind you as an individual. Okay. And so, and so were there, so engaging the business community, proof of concept, um, uh, funding, mm-hmm. any other kind of high level elements that you think? Well, are, I think that, yeah. yeah. The, the other thing that's happening and it's, um, is a continuation of proof of concept idea and that is early stage funding. And so there's, uh, probably 70, 80 universities that have a small seed fund, um, that is, um, part of and only invest or primarily invest in university technologies. And some of these are quite large, like, you know, uh, half a billion dollars. Some of these are quite small. Um, the European, the British universities and, and Israeli universities led the way. It got uh, a couple others in the US picked up on it. In some areas, it's, it's a little less um, necessary, like if you're Stanford and Silicon Valley, there's a lot, a lot of early stage money. But if you're in, um, well, Tucson, Arizona, you do have a, we do have a, a very um, capable, active um, angel network called Desert Angels, and they've invested in some university technologies. But uh, an entrepreneur came forth, a guy who cashed out from one of the companies that. We worked with him. It was uh, purchased by uh, an ongoing company and used some of the proceeds in his relationships with others and built a $10 million venture fund and has invested in university technologies. So it, it, it's basically, you, the, there's a logical um, progression pathway from idea to product. And you can't, and the, the money that's necessary for the later stages is way too much for a university. And so, and you have to put a lot of different shots on goal. So things that are, are parts of the process in the early stage, like, can you prove that the technology can work outside of the person's laboratory? And um, can you show that the individual who is gonna be the chief driver of this technology for the first couple of years can work with other people. Can you um, put a small amount of money to get a high quality uh, experienced business team together through um, basically some seed funding. Uh, all those things are, are 
it happened in, well, in, in the 30 years that I've been doing this uh, and are happening today. And what's next? I'm not necessarily certain what's next, but my approach was look at all the gaps and fill, just keep filling in gaps. And so what do you think some of the gaps are still today? Well, from, um, so this goes back to my TED talk where I demonstrated that uh, most universities put basically 1% of their research money into commercialization activity. Now, that, that's, not all money is the same. It's not fungible. You can't take money from one area and put it in another. That's one thing that people don't understand about universities. It's not like a corporation where a CEO can say, oh, I'm gonna take money from this lab and move it to that other lab. Cause that lab money came from the federal government. You just can't do that. But at a, at a high level, 1% is not sufficient to deal with the amount of uh, technology coming out of that 99%. So you got a $500 million um, research budget or research expenditures, let's put it that way. And then you're only got a $5 million operation and you want success. It's hard. That's not enough money. The big, the, and, um, Unless you got a lot of these other things where there's other people's money, in particular, you're in a you know uh, super active technology community like you know Israel, the you know the startup country of the world, or you're in Boston or Silicon Valley or London or whatever that might be. If you're not, if you're in uh, Tucson, Arizona, that doesn't have that reputation. Uh, and have a lot of money and entrepreneurs coursing through its economy. Um, now, a good tech transfer office can create that and make that happen. And the environment of Tucson is totally different than it was eight years ago. It, it gets lots of accolades. And many have said, and you know, you're only talking to me, so I can say this, but you can talk to others, that, that what we did to, to do well, last year they did 22 or 24 startups out of the university. Well, in a, a town of a million people, that's a lot of new technology companies coming from one institution. So- And, and is that the key so, startup so my, creation? It, yeah, go ahead, sorry. My, my answer is it, these activities are insufficiently funded, generally speaking. And um, you want more, you want more. It's not a question of filling in the gaps. You may have the programs, you just don't have the funding for them. Can you go from, you know, do more speculative patent because it takes so, so long for this to technology. Can you do more proof of concept? Can you hire an individual who can coordinate your uh, entrepreneurial network rather than having it come out of the jobs of others? And these are all contributing to startup creation, which I mean, not you, necessarily. So yeah, can you talk about the importance yeah. of so startup most, creation versus commercialization versus just straight licensing and generating yeah. revenue and, and impact yeah. and all yeah. of that? 
So most, so a, there's a dirty little secret in tech transfer. People count licenses. Not all licenses are the same. There's two types of licenses, an exclusive license and a non-exclusive license. Exclusive means one company, non-exclusive, many companies get access to it. You can make, if you have a groundbreaking technology, uh, non-exclusive licenses may work and, may, and generate good revenue and, and can become very useful. Generally speaking, not. Uh, generally speaking, uh, non-exclusive licenses are for lower value, usually uh, materials or processes that uh, a lot of people can use and it becomes more efficient for them to use it in, in their commercial processes as opposed to a competitive advantage over others. It's kind of a state of the you know, practice kind of thing. Exclusive, one company gets it, they get the rights to make, build or sell based upon the claims of that patent. And it just so happens that, and I think this is pretty much the case everywhere, that it's hard to get a early stage technology into an operating company unless it's itself a really entrepreneurial company and looking for the next thing to upseat the incumbent, the leader. So most cases where um, some of the, the most radical of technologies are often startups. And that's often also the case where the faculty member wants to have a greater role and not leave the university or maybe even leave the university, but um, they want to have a greater role in the baby that they help nurture and uh, into adolescence, the baby that was born in their laboratory. And so the ratio of exclusive licenses to Startups, well, in my career, I did 600 exclusive licenses. Startups almost always get an exclusive license, by the way. You're not gonna get funding if, if you uh, aren't able to have a competitive advantage out of, out of your technology. So I did roughly supervise 600 exclusive licenses and 175 startups. So that close to, you know, 25 to 35%, 30% of exclusive licenses are startups. And can I ask what percentage Arizona would take in those startups? And 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 yeah, if that if you view that at all as a barrier to to startup creation and, and follow on investment and things mm -hmm. like that, okay. because it can yeah. be said uh, of that, right? Well, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> I experienced this when I first started working at a smaller university and, and uh, came to the realization when, when you don't have a lot of technology, you're like a dog with a chew toy. You know, you, you only want to give it up for something that's a lot better because you keep thinking the next toy is going to, you know, come along. Anyway, you're, Basically, if you have a lot of technologies, what you want to do is you want to get as many as possible into the pipe, into the commercial pipeline, and then let the winners sort themselves out. 
So as I said before, almost all universities in terms of what they receive in, in, in compensation from the license agreement are vary by degree, not by kind. And in the case of a startup that doesn't have any cash, you're not gonna get any upfront license fee. The currency the startup has is equity. And so you receive a small fraction of equity. And you may, in the, the, the history of university technology is that you receive anti-dilution protection up to say the first 5 million. And no one else gets that. Well, no one else has the technology. Or there's other ways to do it where you get a certain number of shares. Is and, that is that better than the anti-dilution? Uh, no, I don't think so because I can it can be manipulated. See, the, the problem is that unless you've been a technology entrepreneur, your first deal is with the university. So you got your team and your invent in, your investors looking at it and say, all right, your first deal is to pick this technology. You got to crush those guys. The hell you crush those guys. Those are your partners. You want to make it so that they'll bend over backwards for you. Give them a reasonable deal. Don't crush them. Now, business people who have done this before with universities, multiple serial entrepreneurs, totally understand that. Because in most cases, you're going to have to go back and ask for something. You crush them. They're not going to be, they're not going to be happy about working with you anymore. Yeah, they probably will do something, and but it's going to be, you know, a lot of friction. So you take a, an infinitesimal, basically it was two and a half percent of the first five million. These companies take hundreds of millions of dollars to get to the marketplace. That two and a half percent is watered down to the point where it's nothing. Actually, the problem is when a company does really well, goes public or is acquired, and you say, uh, well, you know, we were have an equity interest. Our equity interest has been so diluted down, people go say, well, how come you didn't make more money? Now, that's why you would also have uh, a running royalty anywhere between, you know, depending upon the technology, a couple, you know, it's always, almost always a single digit, almost always below 5%. And usually when that's acquired, uh, the uh, buyer of that company will try to monetize that to get, to take it off its, uh, uh, you know, as, as a, uh, the future revenue off the books. And so they'll do it as a uh, monetization event or if they don't do that, then you do, you go to an investment organization, investment uh, firm, and you can monetize your own royalty. So you get money in the near term uh, and, and reduce the risk of something happening and, and that technology kind of dying in the vine in the next couple of years. And so monetization is a pretty, especially for drugs, is a pretty active field. I've done a couple monetizations, not the super big ones, like the hundreds of millions and half billion dollars, the two $40 million monetizations. But you get a, a chunk of money and in one of those, the inventor gets 25%. I 
um, did a, a $10 million wire transfer for the guy. Wow. Yeah. That was not the major motivation. The major motivation for that person, and he went to his national society and was on a panel. And when he was introduced, people stood up and clapped and lauded him because he stuck with a technology over many years and it then uh, was approved by the FDA and all those practitioners now had it as an opportunity to use it. That, that you can't beat that. You can't beat your peers um, rewarding you, especially if that's what you've been doing your entire life. So there's lots of motivations here and there's lots of opportunities to correct things. And it's seldom does the, the university never comes back and says, oh, geez, uh, this royalty rate's too low. You're going to have to give us a new one. <laughs> doesn't work that way. It only works the other way. The company's saying this royalty rate's too high. It's affecting our margins, our profitability. We can't get financing. You're going to have to lower it. So you might change, change you, you might lower the, the royalty rate a point or two and uh, get in exchange, get some, some equity. How often does stuff like that happen? These renegotiations of the deal in order to help oh, the company the, succeed? I don't think there's a license that I've done. Maybe that's an overstatement. Has to be the vast majority of licenses get go through either amendments or total reinstatements. Right. It's and it's counterintuitive, right? Like what your advice, if I can kind of put it concisely, is that the you know, you shouldn't, the, the, the entrepreneurs or the licensees shouldn't try to beat the TTOs over the head on the deal terms because inevitably they're going to come back and renegotiate and you want to be partners in this thing. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, there's a negotiation. Basically what you want to do in a negotiation like this, you got to say, okay, what, what, is, what are the standards in the industry? And you go to a law firm that does a lot of licensing and they keep all those records. You go to the, the licensing offices, get, you know, have opportunities to share that information with others. There's databases that have that information. They're usually the databases are all, but they're all any kind of um, 510k type disclosure public documents for publicly traded companies, they'll have the license or royalty rates in it or how much they're paying relative to their revenues and then you can figure it out. I mean, there's there's standards and right. the standards, by the way, since I've been doing this over, uh, have decreased. A 5% royalty rate was pretty common. A 5% royalty rate is pretty uncommon today. Why? Like what? Three, it's lower than that. Yeah, three to 2%. Yeah. So they're becoming more favorable to entrepreneurs and licensees. Yeah. License source. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think part of it is the mentality and the mentality is, you know, if you only have one license, boy, it better work. If you're doing like we were a hundred licenses a year or, you know, and of, of which, you know, 45, 50 are exclusive licenses. Um, eventually you're going to get some of those to work. Right, but if if there's just massive friction in every one of them, it's, it's going to be you're you're going to incentivize somebody to work around. Right. 
You don't want to do that. You want to incentivize them to develop your own technology. And you want to continue to feed them improvements, et cetera. And so why did you ultimately leave technology transfer? I, I have been, first off, I um, turned 66 years old. And I have a lot of things that I want to do with the rest of my life. That uh, my career was very consuming. The stress was um, was palpable, and I never looked back. Others would say, you know, oh, you're going to be right back doing. So I am. I do a little bit of consulting, and I work with uh, an investment group as a senior advisor, but no more than a day a week. And I, and I work on the things that are important to me, my health, my uh, physical fitness. Uh, I'm a bit of a um, amateur naturalist and, um, and my personal relationships are more important. I get to spend more time with those. So it just was a uh, end of a, a transition in my life. Um, obviously you can tell I'm still excited about this as a field and, and remain, you know, uh, my mind remains active about it, but there's other things that, that uh, I wanted to do. It was kind of like the decision of why did I give up being a tenured professor, which is a, a property right and a job for a lifetime to go into a new field where there was, you know, no certainty it would work because that's what I wanted to do at the time. That's where I felt that my life was taking me. And so do you feel that, do you have some, any kinds of predictions for where tech transfer you think will head in the next five to 10 years? If you had to think about it? Uh, yeah, I think that um, where it will go will basically be towards those leading practices that I talked about, where there's more inclusivity of the community, where universities now, the whole COVID pandemic kind of threw a, a wrench in the gears, but um, where universities will be putting more money because there'll be more experienced people. I mean, when I started this back in the uh, late eighties, early nineties, there, we'd get together as a group. There were only 30, 40 people. We could sit around almost around a big table. Now there's 3,000 people, even more than that, that go to the national conferences. Um, every university has a tech transfer office. They used to ship up, they used to outsource some of this. Nobody does that anymore. And so, I think more of the same and a realization that faculty have, that's the other difference. And this is, you know, in a, in a, in a word, you're providing service to the entrepreneurial community, to the business community, to your faculty. And faculty get to a point where if they'd been at a good university and they move to a new university, one of the first things in, in their interviews they ask, is your tech transfer office? They'll ask their, their friends and I wanna meet the director. 
I want to hear what that person has to say. I don't want to go from a good tech transfer office and I'm someone who is in, interested in commercialization to a shitty one. I'll, I'll not go to that university. I don't care about what package you have because I'm not going to spend my life fighting against a tech transfer office after I've been in one that I am highly cooperative with. So it becomes service to faculty and it becomes a competitive advantage to some extent for our universities that do this well that want to hire top level faculty. And now that there's been, you know, a couple decades of this activity, graduate students are in labs of top commercial and research faculty and they see it and they go, oh, my first job, I want to go to a good tech transfer office. The university with a good tech transfer office. So it, it, it's a increasing expectations, increasing resources, filling in all those gaps, uh, greater community involvement, but at the core, it's realizing that you're providing service. And if you don't, you're gonna create friction and it's not gonna work. Wow, excellent. And, and if you had to think about advice that you would give to some young entrepreneurs, grad students, researchers mm -hmm. out there, whether it's related to commercializing technology or yeah. not. Um, yeah, maybe you could t talk a bit about that. Sure. Well, you know, um, here's a story that I think really summarizes it. When I was a faculty member at Penn State, a, a small regional seed fund started. I met the guy and he goes, well, you know, we're a small fund. We don't have the resources for a, uh, to hire you as a consultant. I go, that's all right. Tell you what, I'll just come here, work with you. Um, I had that flexibility as a faculty member. And after about, oh, I don't know, a month and a half or something like that, he goes, you know, I feel guilty that you're doing this work. You're really good at this stuff. We're going to start to pay you now. So the, the point is, you got to invest in yourself. And maybe if you are a individual with motivation in a skill set, your investment is the resource you have is your time. And go to an organization, go to a laboratory, go work with a tech transfer office and say, I, I want to be an intern. Or almost all tech transfer offices have student internships. I think it would be pretty inconceivable that someone would be turned down that had the capability to buy a truck transfer office to be a non-paid intern. And, and if you're good, you're going to get paid. They're going to keep you. They don't want to let you go. They, they trained you that first, that first semester. So my advice is if without the experience, now, and, and one thing you got to do, though, if you're a grad student, is you got to go to your senior advisor and let them know. Let them know you're interested in this because the senior advisor, in a lot of cases, is creating people in their own image. And their image might be, I want you to be a major researcher. And if they find out you're kind of sneaking over to the tech transfer office, that might piss them off. So you got to be upfront with them. And um, 
and many would today it's different today many are encouraged they their peers are doing it uh you say hey listen i want to diversify my skill set beyond my science uh, maybe having done this for a year i make myself more attractive so what typically happens is if, if you're an undergraduate or graduate student you go to your first job interview and how are you going to differentiate yourself from everybody else that has you know good background you know maybe a couple of papers in the mill hey i worked in a tech transfer office i understand electric property i understand commercialization i understand how to how this whole process works. People who have done that, they come back and they tell me, they, that's all they talked to me about. That's all they were interested in. They knew I have a PhD from major university. They know everything about my, my research. What I'm different than the next guy was that I, I told them, you know, what my experience was moving the science into the marketplace. And that's what they wanted to hear. And so it's all about investing in the one resource you, with the one resource you have and that's your time, which is difficult. It's extremely difficult. You know, you got a lot of pressure. Everybody's got pressures on their time. Certainly. But that is the one resource that they have. And, and anything you would tell yourself that, or that you would do differently in your, your multiple decades career across tech transfer and, and professorship and, and all of that? Yeah, there, yeah, generally speaking, I don't look back and I can think of a few times where I should have shut my mouth up and not be such a wise ass, <laughs> but otherwise, no. Got it. Well, it, it, to respect your time, that extremely valuable resource, Dave, I really appreciate it. Um, this has sure, been extremely educational and, and, and kind of in the nitty gritty of tech transfer, which I really like. Um, is there, is there, where can people find you if they want to reach out and, and ask any questions? Well, or? Yeah, I think the best thing is just go to my LinkedIn, just, you know, D David and Alan, there's another David Allen, the guy who does, uh, writes books on organization, which is kind of my, the opposite of me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, you can see the Ted talk and, but beyond that, uh, you can, you know, contact me through LinkedIn and that, that works fine. Great. So we'll, we'll link to your LinkedIn and we'll link to the Ted talk as well. Um, okay. Thank okay. you very, very much for doing this. Uh, it was extremely interesting for me and educational, and I'm sure it will be for, for our listeners. Uh, everyone visit bountiful.org for more. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for joining. Oh, Hey, thanks a lot, Max. It was, it was, it was fun and good luck to, uh, to you doing this. Thank you. Have a good one, everybody. Thanks for listening. But now we need your help. We're building a community of scientists, students, entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors to commercialize meaningful technology and research. Join us at Bountiful.work today to find opportunities and realize your power to save the world.